and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, Challenges That Change Us community. I hope you're having a fabulous day wherever you are in the world as you listen to this. I thank you for taking the time out of your day to share this conversation with us. And remember, we now have our fabulous bonus episodes dropping every Thursday. It is completely different to challenges that change us, the flavor we have on Mondays. The focus is more on high performance and I'm sharing the stage, the host stage with two really great people, Wayne Rubin and Pearl Lim. So if you haven't checked out our bonus episodes, jump on, love your feedback, really appreciate any comments, DMs, anything that you love, anything that you want changed. But today I am thrilled to have on the remarkable guest, Miff Maple. With over two decades dedicated to researching trauma and loss, Miff's expertise lies in understanding the complexities of risk and resilience in the space of suicide. Her work, deeply rooted in social justice perspective, places a strong emphasis on incorporating lived experience to shape policy, research and teaching. In this episode, Miff opens up her passion for delving into the intricacies of suicide experiences, emphasizing the need for a better support system. She sheds light on the power of personal stories, exploring how individual narratives vary based on different perspectives. She candidly discusses her journey to a diagnosis of autoimmune disease, highlighting the challenges it presents in her life while emphasizing that it's not a sentence of despair. And we also dive into the topic of shame, where Miff shares insights on overcoming self-inflicted shame and encourages listeners to embrace compassion and kindness. We have a look at understanding other stories and how crucial that is, and Miff advocates for empathy in our interactions, reminding us that everyone carries a unique narrative. Lastly, we gain a glimpse into Miff's role at the Manor Institute, where she actively contributes to enhancing the lives of Australians, promoting harmonious balance in work and play. If any of the content today is distressing or you want to talk to someone, remember that Lifeline is here to listen on 13 11 14. Let me introduce you to Miff. Welcome Miff to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you for coming on this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Ali. I love to start every episode with asking our guests what animal best describes you and what is it in particular about that animal? So this did take me a little bit of time and I know other guests have said the same, but I'm going to go with the duck. And the reason is that I can be pretty calm on the surface, even when my little feet underneath the water are paddling madly. But also often I have to have that sense of it's water off a duck's back to just keep going all of the time and that I can pretty much let things go pretty easily. And the other reason with a duck is that when ducks are protecting their young or are protecting their territory, they can get pretty angry and start snapping pretty hard. And I think I can be pretty quiet and pretty calm, but when 
I have something to say or if I have something yeah to protect or to advocate for I can definitely find my voice and quack pretty loud. It's interesting you say that because you're sitting in a space now that you do a lot of advocacy work and I think there's a real art to finding that space about being passionate about something and finding the words to explain it and articulate it and bring people along on the journey with you when you're wanting them to understand or learn more or open their minds up to something that's going on? Yeah, so much so. And I've been thinking a lot about this actually in broad advocacy spaces where a personal story is so powerful to talk about an event that happened to illustrate an event or a way that say, a policy or a government initiative might impact a person. But collectively, those stories are really powerful too. So I'm really privileged, I guess, in my professional life that I collect stories for research. And my job is to see the patterns and nuance amongst lots of stories to understand what's a common experience and what's an uncommon experience. But being able to tell one story to illustrate that is what is so powerful in a conversation, say, with a minister or when you're trying to influence public dialogue around something. So it's that real balance and it, it, and sometimes there's a tension around that too. So, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. It's an interesting space to be in when you're trying to advocate and, and use stories to help us advocate. And it's interesting that you, when you say that, hearing that word tension because it's so often the case, isn't it? It's like how do we share our personal story, respect other people within that story, feel brave enough to step into the limelight and tell it? It is so complex. Ironically, I was asked in a family law matter to give evidence and the judge in the end said that I was unreliable and I really found that quite challenging to deal with. No way! Right. So I've thought about it a lot because I've also given professional evidence where I've never been (laughs) told I was unreliable. But it's because I was talking about experiences from my point of view. And so then when asked, could there be other perspectives on it? My professional hat is, of course, there is. Like, this is only my view of these events. Of course, another party would have completely different experiences and would tell it completely differently than what I would. So, in the end, that made me unreliable. But it also really makes me think about who owns a story and how do we talk about those stories that we're privileged to hold for others, but also acknowledging that people have really different experiences. So like if I was to ask my three brothers about an event in our lives, say growing up, they would all feel really differently about it and have different recollections about it than I would because not only are we like they're boys and I'm a girl and they're different ages to me, like all of these things that all of their experiences to that time would have also reflected differently. And then later on now, like if we were looking back to childhood, we're looking over several decades. So our memories have changed and our other experiences have changed. So I wonder about this, like, you know, is is there a truth? And then how do we pull together those truths? And so I guess that's where I was talking about those tensions is that we can use a story and maybe it's a person telling their own story in say a media article, for example, but then we can also use a collective story. So what I mean by that is we'll do big qualitative studies. So we'll, through a survey, we'll ask like thousands of people the same question and then analyze that to look at where are the patterns in these stories. So 
one story might be illustrative of the issue that we're looking at, but the patterns across many people help us to say this is not an uncommon story, that some people will experience this more harshly, they'll have more disadvantage or they'll they'll have more trauma out of an experience because of these other things. So there's both tensions and benefits of being able to look at the individual and the collective, but also we've got to remember that we all have different views and different experiences of the same event. <laughs> and 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 so considering like who owns that I think is is super important when we're advocating for change and when we're ensuring that a particular lobby group doesn't get too much voice when others who might be more impacted by an event or a situation have no voice. And you mentioned there who owns that story. Are you able to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so a lot of the work that I do and have done now for over 25 years is in the space of suicide. So suicide prevention, suicide intervention, so interventions to prevent suicide at the crisis point immediately after, so supporting people after an attempt or carers, and then people bereaved by suicide. So in that space of suicide, which is obviously really devastating and really challenging and highly emotive and really difficult landscape to traverse, I talk to carers and I talk to people who are bereaved by suicide, and often that's about their experience of the bereavement or the caring that they've done for somebody. But they're also talking about the suicide event, so the person that they've cared for, that they love, that they've supported, and talking about that person. That's their view of that story. It's not the other person's truth. The other person's truth might be very different. And maybe if I give you an example to illustrate when this first really became apparent to me to tell a story because that helps people understand what I'm trying to get across. Way back when I did my PhD, I spoke to parents who were bereaved by suicide. And I've often been asked if that was a really hard thing to do, but it's actually a really privileged space to sit with people and hear their stories as you get to do with this podcast. But in this one family, I spoke to a father whose son had died 17 years before the time that I spoke to him. And um, the son was 17 at the time. And so when the father saw an advertisement for my study, he thought this is something I could really contribute to and isn't it ironic that it's sort of 17 years and, and my son was 17 at the time and so there must be some meaning in this. So he really wanted to participate. He then asked his ex-wife whether she would like to participate as well and that started a conversation between them 17 years after their son had died where the mother actually never thought that the son had intended to die whereas the father was always certain that the son had intended to die. And that's the criteria for a coroner to rule a suicide death is around intent, that the person intended to end their life. It wasn't an accidental overdose. And so I started thinking about like, what does that mean to the father and the mother who I never met? So the story is all through the father, that they had 17 years later come to this realization that they viewed their son's death in completely different ways. And, and such a fundamental difference. And so then obviously there's no way to talk to the person who's died by suicide, but I wonder what his truth would have been around that as well. And so it started me really thinking about this, you know, we're all looking through different lenses on the same event. And so how we then make meaning of it, how we come to understand that is going to be so different for every single person. And so we can never judge 
somebody else's view as different or wrong or incorrect because actually it's just their version of events and their recollection of events and their experiences that led them to understand that event in that particular way. I must admit, as you're talking, this really hits home for me. As many of our listeners know, I shared my story and one of the magazines has asked to do an article on me as well. And I remember thinking at the time, what is my story to tell and what is someone else's story and where's that crossover and what does that mean? And if I'm advocating in this space for anyone that has been through similar things to what I've been through, that they can have a life and that they can find joy and feel peace in their hearts and hope, how much of my story do I need to tell? But where's that line? You know, and I'm thinking about that as you're talking around I think you opened with something like stories can be so powerful to create movement and to create awareness and to help us understand on a bigger scale what can be going on for some people or cohorts or, you know, common themes that might come through that we might be able to go and put some, I guess, education or some strategies in place or what there's lots of things that can come out of that. So it's kind of this, these are really strong two sides, competing sides. There totally is. And the other part of it that I think makes it really complex is that once you've told your story publicly, there's like an artifact of that. So it might be if it's on social media or a podcast or a video or, you know, wherever it might be, a book. That story is then kind of stuck in time to when you did that. And your story will keep developing because you do. And so you have new experiences, there's new things that happen, you learn new things and you start to think about it differently. So one of the things that I think about a lot at the moment where we're up to in the suicide prevention field and actually in mental health more broadly is a real push for people with lived experience to share their stories and for peer workers to to work in a variety of different roles, which is fantastic and I absolutely have advocated for that for as long as I've been in this field, because people who have shared experience can understand each other in a really fundamental way that a professional relationship doesn't allow for. But at the same time, if you choose to exit from that, your story is still there. So an example is Kevin Hines, who has done an enormous amount of awareness raising around suicide prevention. Kevin Hines did jump off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived, and he's told his story across multiple different platforms, and it's an incredibly powerful story of resilience, and it's a really powerful tool for people to understand suicide prevention in a really powerful way. Because he's told his story so many times and because his name is now synonymous with that particular event, I wonder what would happen if he wanted to be someone else, if he didn't want to be known for that anymore? And, you know, that's just an example. I don't know Kevin Hines at all. I've seen him speak, but I've never met him personally. I have no idea whether or not he would ever want to, you know, not tell his story in that way. But it's a good example because it's really well-known example and because it has there's been a movie made about it. There's you know, lots of books on YouTube and etc. So what happens then if he didn't want that story to be told anymore? And so, and I wonder about that when when we're telling stories because they do get stuck in time. And so 
that's both powerful but also potentially a risk. And you said the words, you know, you will feel differently. That's one thing we know to be true. (laughs) You know, we do feel differently about events as time progresses, whether there's some healing work done, whether it's layered with more grief or more trauma or more complexity, but it does shift. And as humans, nothing remains static. That's you know, that's the only thing we know to be true is change is inevitable, same as change in our feelings and the change in our perspective, the change in the lens that we view it through. Exactly. And it's not time heals all wounds. Like that's that's the other thing that I think is really important. Like if you narrow it down to its kind of like component parts, people will say it's time, but it's not time. It's just different experiences and that will change things. Maybe sometimes, you know, you'll be more resilient. Maybe sometimes you'll be more vulnerable depending on what that change is. And so it's only time that gives us some perspective. It's not necessarily a, a better or worse or, and, and that can change. That's a continuum. And Miff, with all this talking about stories, maybe this is the the time for us to start to ask the question about like, how did you get into this in the first place? You know, we're talking about where you are today, but there's, you know, a long time and a long story and a long history and a lot of experiences that have happened along the way to get you to where you are today. Do you want to take us back to the beginning? It's a really interesting question, actually, Ali, because as I came up through the academic ranks to professor, I looked younger then. And so people would often make some assumptions about me being like middle-class female and, you know, just straight through school, straight to uni, you know, high achiever, straight through the academic ranks. But actually that's not the case. And so I always kind of find it amusing that's kind of how I present because it's definitely not what happened. Although I did have a very middle-class upbringing and I was really privileged to never have to worry about housing or food on the table or anything like that. Like I just really lucky to live in a relatively safe suburb and, you know, have those basic needs met. Absolutely. 100%. But my parents separated when I was 12 and it was right at the beginning of year seven. And so that's obviously a quite a hard time anyway, developmentally, it's a challenging time, but I was so shy. I still am incredibly shy. And I that kind of safety in the world then disappeared. So we kind of became the original latchkey kids, not even called that anymore because it's so common that kids are, you know, moving between different care arrangements and what have you. But at the time, like I really struggled with that and my parents still get on really, really well many, many, many decades later. Like they just, we didn't see it coming. But that that kind of shattering of my secure little world as a very introverted early teen kind of, really set me on a different path. So it's interesting because I could have, I guess, just gone into my shell, which would have been probably easier for me to understand actually. But instead what I did was kind of go the other way and became really loud and a lot of risk-taking behaviours, a lot of drug and alcohol and living life on the edge. And I left school and left all of that behind, left home and was pretty awful to be around, to be quite honest, and fairly embarrassed about some of the things I did back then. And I wish I could retell myself stories that weren't true about that so I didn't have to live with that shame. But the shame is definitely there. It took me a while to work out like what this whole world was about. It did not make any sense to me at all after that. And obviously then spending those teenage years living life a bit on the edge, it didn't help me to make sense really of anything. But I then went over to the States when I was 18, following a love interest, as you do when you're 18. But that distance gave me perspective and made me think, hang on a minute, like, I don't need to live my whole life like this. I could do something different. And I held down good jobs. And I'd done a lot of things that because I'd started working so early that other people 
who are 18 hadn't done yet. But what I'd done by leaving school meant that I couldn't just go straight to uni. I didn't have an HSC. I didn't really have a intense certificate either. And I didn't really kind of believe in myself, I guess. But I decided that I really had something more meaningful to do and that I could live my life in a different way. So I came back to Australia. I continued to work and I went back to TAFE and did my HSC and then went to uni. That time, though, allowed me to amusingly be a mature age student at like 22 or 23 or something. But nonetheless, it allowed me to really see things through different lights, to understand different struggles, to see people living in really different ways than the way that I had grown up, to not know how my life was going to go. And I think that insight and that time and not having the easiest path to just then get to uni were all really important things for me to be able to, I guess, place myself into social work, which is my professional background. But interestingly, the introvert bit didn't go away. It still hasn't, by the way. Um, but So for the first few years of uni doing social work, I didn't talk. Like in tutorials, I never put up my hand. I never spoke. I had to do like presentations and things to the class and I literally like was petrified. And it wasn't until... I think the fourth year of my degree, and there were a lot of middle-class privileged young women, particularly straight out of private schools at university with me, and we were talking about termination of pregnancy. And at this point in time, these young Christian women were putting forward a very Christian view on what termination of pregnancy meant to them. And I just saw red. I couldn't sit there and not say anything anymore. And I just found my voice. And since then, I still have the same kind of heart palpitations and rising body temperature when I have to speak out in really uncomfortable situations. But I realized that I can talk to these really tricky topics and understand different people's points of view on them, but also advocate for points of view that might be less common or more stigmatized and use that in really powerful forums. And so once I find my voice, I can, I can use that. But that, that time of difficult challenge during adolescence, I guess, helped me to see the world through those different lenses and, and not just through, you know, a relatively privileged view as a white female in middle-class Australia. I'm going to take you back a little bit. There was a lot in that story. But first of all, the thing that's sitting with me is around when you said you left school. How old were you when you left school? I think technically I left when I was like 16, but I think I like actually had left maybe about 14 because when I left, I think I had 365 days of Wednesday afternoon detention owing because of all of the times I hadn't been there. It was a pretty shocking attendance record. My year advisor, who we all got together as friends on Facebook for a 20-year school reunion, I must have put something on there about being a professor. And he said, I think you were the least likely to actually ever finish school, let alone go to university, but certainly the least likely to ever to get a doctorate. So um, that's kind of the reflection of how bad it was. And you're the second person I've had on in the last sort of six weeks that finished school before year 10 and got a PhD. And so let's just hold that space up there. Anything is possible. How we think it needs to track, life just never tracks that way. So for any of the listeners out there that might be going through something now and you're thinking, 
I thought I was going down this road and now that's just been, I've been sideswiped and I'm not there anymore. I think, you know, your story, Miff, is a really good example of it's okay because there's always a way. There's always another way. And sometimes when one door shuts, another door opens and that's the door that you meant to walk through that you would never have got the opportunity to walk through had you not had one slammed in your face. Absolutely. The right door opens up at the right time. It might not feel like it. And there's so many different ways to get there. Actually, when I've talked to kids in Backtrack, which is a local Armadale youth program, which is obviously well-renowned now across Australia, but talking to those kids about, you know, it doesn't matter if you haven't been to school. There's always a way to get forward. There's always a way that if you want to go to university, there is a way to get there. It's just once you've got your mindset on that, you can absolutely do it and you can draw around the support that you need to get there. It's going to be hard for sure. Like it's definitely an easier road just to go straight through school, get a great HSC, go straight into uni. Absolutely. For those people that can do that, like fantastic. But that's not everybody's story and not everybody's experience. And there is always a way to get there. And the other thing that I heard you mention, you used the word embarrassed and then you came looped back around and said, you know, I still have shame in that space. And I thought, it might be worth us just touching on that because I think shame is one of the, one of the things we don't talk about enough and it can be something that makes us feel like we need to be silent for a really long time. And I think you spoke about it in the sense that there were things that you did throughout those years that you're not proud of and where that sits now and how you kind of digest that now and how that fits in with your story and who you are. To me, it's about being truthful with yourself as well because the things that I did, like I enacted, so I didn't have things done to me that I feel shameful about. And I think that's probably a different conversation around the way that shame can sit very heavily on people. Whereas for me, I did things that I'm not proud of, usually under the influence of drugs or alcohol. And some of my friends have stayed with me during that. And I think they're the better people for that, really, that they could do that. And in fact, I was in London just a few weeks ago with a really special friend and a a big event in her life, I definitely made worse. But to still have that friendship and to have that shared history, but also all of the history since. We didn't talk for a long time, but we rehealed that relationship. And, you know, I really think she's the better person than I am absolutely to allow me to stay in her life but in that I still feel that that shame like I wish I hadn't have done those things but at the same time I wouldn't be me if I hadn't either I wouldn't have thought a lot about what my behavior does to others how I interpret my behavior how I can sit back and be quiet in a space as well as put forward views and act or not act so yes definitely there's still reminders of bad behavior as a teenager but I also think we all have to be pretty generous with teenagers because that's a really tricky time of life when you're trying to work out who you are in this like mixed up place and 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 where you're going to go and and you know how you identify in in a complex social structure with all of this feeding in from different places and different information all these algorithms that are trying to trick you and I'm glad that there was no social media back then. Oh, I <laughs> really think we glad. all say that, right? I'm like, I would I oh, so glad. <laughs> right. We have to be super generous with how we think about young people now because their lives are documented from birth. And so we have to be really generous about 
the different stages that they'll go through because that will all be there for them to keep looking back on and seeing, whereas we only have to look back inside our minds at our memories. Yeah, and they can be so great, you know, <laughs> our memories. I remember doing a course in one of my psych degrees on memories in court and eyewitness statements and just how wrong we get it, like we get it wrong more than we get it right, and that has stayed with me forever, even before my stroke. Now my memories absolutely shot but I was like oh what I think to be true and what actually happened could be very different like the the car could have been blue and I thought it was yellow and I could really swear that it was yellow exactly particularly if there's any influence in that right yeah. if somebody says yeah I'm pretty sure like I saw that yellow car yeah well then straight away it's yellow in your mind yeah Hey guys, very quickly jumping in to tell you about an exciting and rare opportunity. In March this year, we are inviting 25 senior leaders for three days to the High Performance Leadership Summit. Are you driven by the pursuit of high performance? Have you spent years navigating the complexities of the business world, striving for excellence? I share that same relentless pursuit and I've discovered that some of the most invaluable insights into high performance have come from the most unexpected places outside of the confines of business. I want you to picture this, a curated multidisciplinary approach to high performance, a team of exceptional individuals. Imagine learning from a three-time Australian Olympian, Sammy Kennedy Sim, who proudly carried the national flag at the last Winter Olympics. Add in David Ballard, the head of high performance at the powerhouse Brisbane Broncos NRL team, mastering excellence in high-pressure team sports. Now, most of you would have seen the grand final last year to think about where that team came from at the beginning of the season and where they landed at the end. Now throw in a military expert with active service experience and some organizational psychologists, experts in unraveling the complexities of our minds and our hearts. And to top it off, some seasoned business leaders who have lived and breathed high performance, high pressured situations, navigating boardrooms to leading successful multinational companies. This, my friends, is the recipe for the High Performance Leadership Summit in 2024, where worlds collide and lessons merge into a powerhouse of knowledge. This is not your average event. It's an intimate setting limited to 25 senior business leaders. There will be absolutely no passive experience here. Think engaging conversations, hands-on workshops, personalized insight tailored to your unique challenges. Imagine three days of immersive, transformative, unparalleled experiences. If you're hungry for more than just a conference, if you're ready to dive deep into the intricacies of high performance with like-minded peers, then this is your moment. I would love to invite you to join us. If you're interested, jump in the show notes, click on the link, book a conversation with me, DM me on LinkedIn. I really would love to have a chat to you about this. Now let's get back to the episode. So you've talked to us a little bit about, you know, those teenage years and then you, you said you went overseas and that really opened your world up. What did it look like after that? What happened next for you? So I guess because I'd chosen a bit of a tricky path, I, as I said, I had to go back and do my HSC at TAFE. But then during university, I had to still work full time. I was living out of home. My brother thankfully supported me and paid a lot of the rent for some of that time. Social work students do a thousand hours of unpaid practice during their four-year degree, which is really hard. There's a big inquiry into student poverty at the moment. Like it's 
awful and it's awful to watch our students still doing that you know, 25 years after I've done my degree. It's hard and if you've got caring responsibilities or you, you know, you've got mortgage or rent or whatever, it's, it's just really, really hard. So it was definitely a hard time but I was really lucky in that because I'd had those experiences, I was so focused. I knew I wanted to do it and I was hungry for the information that I was being taught. And so where at school everything felt like, you know, who cares about modern history and cares about whether I know trigonometry or not. Everything I was learning was super interesting. And so I was just like so engaged in that. So I did well and because I was just hungry for that information. And so I ended up getting a really high mark in my honours degree, which allowed me to go straight into a PhD. I did work in between. I became a single mum Obviously, I had a partner. <laughs> I had two children, and then I was a single mom. And I did my PhD at University of New England, where I haven't managed to leave yet. A quarter of a century later, but doing a PhD during that time was fantastic because it meant that I had flexibility with the kids. And so, if one of them was sick, I could study from home. If they were going to school and daycare, I could take them and work at the office at uni. So, yeah, it was a really quite a kind and calm time in my life. And I loved my PhD and I loved working with my supervisors and I loved the challenge, the intellectual challenge of doing that well. And people always say, if you have a PhD, you must be really, really smart. Um, I tell my PhD students that I don't think that's true at all. I don't think I'm particularly smart in any way, shape or form. I think it's like determination and grit. It's how long you're prepared to sit in the seat and work on a piece of work in such detail and it's only a tiny speck of the universe but that tiny speck of the universe is slowly building this brick wall of knowledge around your topic and so if you can both see it at the micro but the macro level at the same time and sit on that seat even when you hate it so much that's what a PhD is really about and so I think for me that time of being a single mum with those two boys it was such a kind time to be able to just sit and really work on something that I found really intellectually stimulating. But I could also be thinking about when I was taking the kids for a bike ride or I was sitting at the park pushing the swing for the four millionth time and the kids still didn't want to go home. I could still be thinking about it. And so it was a really good time to to do a PhD. Not everybody would agree with that and think that when you've got two young kids. I was thinking that. Like, I was like, I'm, I'm not sure that that's the language I hear single mums doing a PhD use. But isn't it interesting because it, it's different to the life that you were living, which sounded a lot more chaotic and uncertain and lots of writing you didn't know what was happening and now this you know there's some certainty here even though there's still uncertainty absolutely and I bought a little house and like it, it so it was just a it was a really stable time and I knew that I could provide stability for my kids and that was really important to me for them to know that they had that stability that they felt comfortable in their house that they had all of that security that I really valued from my own childhood. I do take that not everybody would find doing a PhD quite the same way as I'm articulating it, but certainly that was my experience. And I can imagine they're not all the challenges that you face. Like I'm sure there are multiple more as we start to, you know, move through life. Were there others that came up? Actually, after the birth of my first child, I developed my first autoimmune condition. It's interesting, different stories. My stepmother thought that I was really depressed and putting on a lot of weight through depression because I was a single mum and, you know, trying to struggle through all of this. But actually what was going on was that my thyroid had completely stopped working and I didn't know. And so I was getting sicker and sicker, but I was busy mum and, you know, people say you're really tired and, you know, 
baby fat is hard to move and all of those kind of messages that we get as new mums. By the time I actually went to the doctor, I'd gone back to Sydney to visit my mum and she looked at me and just went, oh my God, you have like you have to go to the doctor. There's something really wrong with you. And so when I had my blood tested, there was no detectable thyroid hormone left in my body. So I should essentially have been in a coma. Um, I don't know what was still keeping me upright at that time. But interestingly, like I was only then 26 or something, you know, I started taking medication for it and it's a relatively easy autoimmune condition to, to manage. But I still had the ignorance of good health, I would say, during all of that time. I'd sometimes forget to take my medication. I wouldn't like it. It just didn't really feel like a life sentence, I guess. But what I didn't know is that autoimmune conditions cluster together. And so I've picked up a few more in the time since then. But I guess most challenging is that, so maybe I have to tell a little story before I get to this in that I do lots of physical challenges to keep myself going. And I know, Ali, you do a lot of physical things as well. But I find that if I have a goal, it's really good for me. So I was fundraising for scholarships for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to be able to go to the National Suicide Prevention Conference in 2016. And to do that, I hiked the Larapinta through Central Australia. So I was doing a lot of training and I love Central Australia. I've spent quite a bit of time there and just find it such a beautiful place. And I thought that was a really powerful thing to do. But during that training, I started to notice a few injuries before I did the hike. And one I'd had from when I was a child where I had weak ankles and I thought I've just overtrained. That's all that's wrong with me. Then I did the hike, which is very challenging, very beautiful. And I started to get a lot of issues with my knee. And I thought, oh, it's just because it's a very challenging hike and you know this will heal up. Then I started to notice other things like I couldn't carry the shopping in from the car because my elbows would ache for like days after carrying the shopping. And then I couldn't walk up the stairs in our two-bedroom house, even when the kids needed me. So over a course of some time, I was diagnosed with inflammatory arthritis and fibromyalgia. And whether or not those diagnoses will stick, we'll see, because it's a very inexact science, rheumatology, I've found. As a researcher, of course, I've gone and looked at all of the evidence and I, I know how inexact it is. But that was really challenging. And it was at a time when I was going through a very traumatic divorce. And obviously, that also increases an inflammatory response. So it was a really, really difficult time in my life. And to come to terms with not just having a thyroid disorder that meant that I had to take a tablet every day, but you know where I had to start you know injecting medications and, and trying a whole lot of different medications until I found something that worked for me. That has been very challenging to come to terms with. But at the same time, I think it's in a way, it's completely invisible most of the time. So I look completely normal. I look healthy because I do a lot of exercise, which is one of the things that keeps me going really well. It keeps my joints lubricated. But I might spend a week in bed and I still look the same. I just can't get up. And for me, the biggest challenge is how much is in my head and how much is in my body. Do I need to push myself a little bit more and I'll feel better? Or if I push myself a little more, will I fall over completely? And I still don't know how to make that calculation. And sometimes I get it right and sometimes I don't. And when I don't, it can lead to being really sick for a few days or a week or more. And then I think, oh, I did that wrong. What were the, what were the triggers? What, and you go back and you try and work out, like, could I change this? Could I change that? It's interesting because I know lots of people experience COVID in a really challenging way. 
and it was obviously globally challenging and I'm not diminishing that. But for me, that smaller world of staying at home, no travel, work pressures diminished, even though I was working really hard and all of our work went online so it didn't change work in a lot of ways, the not going out and not having all of that social contact, the travel for work, that was fantastic and I learned so much more about what triggers me during that time. So I'm forever grateful to have that period of quietness to work that out. It's that old teaspoon theory, isn't it? It's that, you know, when you're talking about chronic illness and that invisible illness, it's like how do we explain to the outside world or more importantly, how do we explain to ourselves some sort of measure so we can manage it? And that's one of the greatest challenges that I heard then as you were talking. It's like, Will movement help? Will movement make it worse? Do I do this? Don't I do this? Is it me? Is it not? Is it, you know, but that teaspoon theory, I think what I heard there for our listeners is that if you've only got 14 teaspoons a day, what is it that takes teaspoons and what is it that gives you back teaspoons? And that will look different for everyone at different times in their lives. And what I can hear for you, Miff, was during that COVID time, maybe it was a little easier for you to be like, oh, actually, if I'm not traveling every day, I can conserve some teaspoons. For example, that's just an example. It might be different for you, but it gave you a little bit more, I guess, context and information around what works for you in that moment. Absolutely. And so now I've got my top three that I won't ever, well, I won't say I won't ever do. I'll be very cautious if I make these decisions. So flying is a a big opportunity for a flare-up for me, particularly early morning flights because they're cold. They're really, really cold and I can't, my body temperature doesn't regulate at all, which is a ridiculous thing for a menopausal woman to say because usually I'm really, really hot. But if I get cold, I can be cold for days. Like I just cannot warm up. So an early morning flight, unless it's there's no other options, I will not do it. Quality sleep. I have to have quality sleep. Like regardless of anything else, if my sleep starts to diminish, that is absolutely a trigger for me without any doubt at all. And just the busyness and stress of work. So competing demands. So going back to feeling like a duck where underneath the water, like I'm paddling madly. Now I really try and calm that down, even if things don't get done. And I find that really challenging because I love my work and I can see so many things I can do. But what I have done since COVID is reduce my working hours to three days a week to try and reduce the amount of time that is spent in that busy often quite reactive way of working. It hasn't quite worked. And this is my first year of reducing my hours, but I'm trying really hard (laughs) to reduce that because of those three things. If I can take them out of my life, the triggers are less. And so, and yes, absolutely. That gives me back a heap of spoons that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And just there, it's important for us to recognize that passion takes teaspoons. You can be passionate about something or you can really love something. It can still take your teaspoons. So, you know, sometimes we do need to say no to the things that we love. Exactly. It's interesting because I've come to this kind of point and obviously I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, but I've come to a point where I feel that there is a lifetime or many lifetimes of work to be done in my field. Some of it I can do and I can do really well and that's fantastic. But other bits of it, other people can do. Like, I don't have to do it. And if I don't do it, will it matter in the future? Like, I feel like I've made a really great contribution to my area of work. If I don't keep doing it, it probably doesn't matter. Somebody else will. I give ideas to people all the time. Sometimes they'll pick them up and sometimes they won't. And sometimes they're probably terrible ideas. But, you know, I don't, I don't feel that I have to do it. And that's definitely an outcome of 
slowing down and prioritizing my health over everything else. And that's I prioritize my health over my partner and my kids because if I'm not healthy, I cannot do anything for them. And that's a hard thing to do too, particularly as women, like we're not really trained (laughs) to put ourselves first. And sometimes I don't do it that well and it's a bit clumsy, but I absolutely have to because otherwise I'll fall in a heap and that's not helpful to anyone, let alone me and my longevity. And when we're talking about perspective and story, if we just change that language a little bit to say, I'm putting them first by putting me first, you know? So we have this language that I think we all so commonly share, I know I do as a mom, is that if I'm not giving them my all, then I I'm not putting them first, but really if we're making sure we're solid and anchored and grounded and our cups are full and our teaspoons are full, we can be so available emotionally, physically, intellectually, spiritually to the people we love and be there wholeheartedly for that connection. But for some reason we have all this language around let's run on empty and see how we go and hope for the best. Right. That's it. Yeah, that's a beautiful reframe. I'm going to use that for now. I know we've just touched on it, but there's been quite a few things that you've mentioned from those early teenage years to traveling overseas at a young age to doing your PhD, being a single mom, having chronic illness, like lots of experiences that are going into this conversation. If you were to stand back and kind of take a bird's eye view, have there been some clear fundamental blocks that have helped you navigate each of those kind of adversities or challenges along the way for you personally? Yeah, so I guess there's probably a couple of things that really help me. So one is exercise, absolutely. Like to me, that's like nature's drug, like absolutely as much exercise as possible. The other things that I think have helped me is really being internally honest and true with myself. And that's not always easy, but I spend a lot of time, some people would say I spend too much time in my head and not enough in my heart. I think I try and balance that because I really try and think through what is the actual issue that's happening right now? Because it's easy to catastrophize things. It's really easy to lose perspective on what needs to be addressed kind of first (laughs) and what can wait. So I do spend a lot of time thinking through that, whether that's, you know, an issue with one of my kids and trying to work out how to parent that best, whether it's a problem at work, there's all sorts of different things that I'll try and really think through. And so similarly with particularly living with chronic illness, like like I said, you know, I read all of the, the scientific literature because having a lot of information empowers me. But the other thing I would say is having really good mentors. And sometimes they're mentors who are friends and sometimes they're professional mentors. But having people that are there who are really so engaged in a conversation that is about me being able to talk through things and then I can take that back into my life. I really advocate for people to have mentors, whether it's personal, professional, whether it's for exercise, whatever it is, that coaching and mentoring I think really helps. But I think a calmness about most things is good. My risk is that it also can bottle up emotions and then not be able to talk about things at the right time. So sometimes I'll let things kind of bubble up and bubble up and bubble up and then go everywhere. (laughs) But trying to be a bit more considered, I think, is for me the only thing that I can manage. Ironically, though, that's also why I think people think, oh, Miff can just keep taking more and more on. And so that's my challenge always to say, actually, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'm pretty good at saying no, but people won't necessarily see that because I won't necessarily be running around kind of a a bit chaotic when things are, are overwhelming. 
it's that greatest strength, your greatest weakness. What I heard there is the calmness for you really helps. It's a foundational block, but what it can mean for the external world is they go, oh, she's calm. She's doing okay. Let's load her up or not realize just how much you're struggling in that moment, in that point in time. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> you mentioned a few things. I'm going to pull them back together and reiterate what you said. So the first thing I heard there was the what's actually going on here. And I talk about that as in, I thought I was playing tennis, but I'm actually playing football. So I just need to stop for a moment and be like, what framework or what rules have changed here? And what am I actually dealing with? Like, what is the outcome that we actually want out of this scenario or this situation or this event? Then you mentioned what needs to be addressed and what doesn't. So like what now is a priority and what can actually be pushed back? Because it might be something that can wait three days, three weeks, three months, but we've had it at the top of our list and we've just kept it there because we thought it needed to stay there. But when we take that bird's eye view and have a look at the situation for what it is now and what outcome we want to achieve it, we can actually push it back a bit. And then you said the mentors. I often talk about this as the well-being board, like the well-being board of directors. Who do you need sitting around your table that can help you, whether it be advice, whether it be that cheerleader, whether it be, you know, someone that you can just rock up in your PJs and have a good cry and you know that they're not going to hold that against you the next day. I often think about that with our partners. How do we share our story of our partners without them judging our partners? You know, because we're in it. If you're a deep briefer, you want to tell everyone, but you don't want them to judge your partner because it's actually not about them. It's actually about our experience of that situation and being able to unpack that and debrief that and make sense of that in our world. Exactly. And I think that in doing that and thinking about that wellbeing board of directors, it helps us to then not to always rush at it from our perspective. So it goes back to the there's two sides to every story. Well, there's actually many more. But if we take a bit of time, we can see it from the other people's perspective in that situation as well, because we're rarely dealing with something that's just us. It's usually us in relation to others. And so if we can think just a little bit about what might the other perspective be, whether it be, you know, parenting, whether it might be a problem at work or, you know, whatever it might be, that it gives us just a bit of time to think, I'm only coming at this from my angle. And it takes some of the kind of passion, what's the word, like where you sideswipe because, yeah, because, <laughs> you, you know, you're getting, it's a bit of a wrong hit often because you're coming at it too quick. So, yeah, having that time to consider the other people's perspective, I think also is something that, yeah, I try to do. I'm definitely not an expert at it. I try to do. And talking about that invisibility of a chronic illness, Miv, how do you navigate having the conversations with people, not your in your home people, I mean like the external world. So whether that be professional, friends, acquaintances, how do you find language around that? How much do you share? What don't you share? What have you found hard? It's a great question, Ali. I find it really challenging to work this out because in some ways I want to be able to advocate for other people that have invisible illnesses and that we should be thinking about inclusion and diversity and we should be thinking about how we manage our workplaces around all different abilities and at different times how much ability we have and when we have limitations. At the other end, I don't want it to be the part that people think is something that always has to be considered because it doesn't. And so it's kind of like you sometimes hear in disability world, people will say, you know, my disability is the least interesting thing about me. And I feel like that with chronic illness as well. But at the same time, it has to be sometimes the thing that you want people to take interest of because you need some adjustments. I find that really hard. And so in the workplace, I have absolutely had to tell people, particularly when I reduced my hours for a period of time, I've had to be clear about that and hold that space and be okay with that space. And that can feel quite confronting to somebody who has just been able to 
work and do things well and you know produce and all of that so I, I found that really quite challenging to work out what language I would use and how much I would talk about it but at the same time I find myself talking about it more than I, I thought I would actually and I, I feel completely okay with that I don't feel that I should hide that but I also talk about that it's challenging to talk about and it's not because it's upsetting to talk about it's because I'm challenged by how much do I share and in detail and how much do I not want to focus on that as the most important part of my life because it's not it's just one of the many things in my life and I think that will be really different for different people and I think that it goes back to our earlier conversation around stories and how we tell stories and it will be really different like when I'm really struggling to get out of bed the way that I feel about my illness and talk about it is much different to when I'm feeling great and you know I'm doing a long bike ride or something yeah it's it's a real mental game I think for me it's and I do try really hard to think particularly when I'm sharing my story publicly how can it help other people who have invisible illnesses and interestingly because I've just been traveling for the last month or so I've been looking at all of the signs in public transport for you know if there's an elderly person or a pregnant woman or somebody that might need the seat more than you stand up and so I was in the London tube and they actually have massive posters that say not all disability is visible And so to help people understand that others might need the seat more than you who might not look like an old man with a cane or a pregnant woman, which is usually what you see when you're looking at the photos and the pictures around who you should get up for. And I just thought, isn't that fabulous? And so for me, telling a bit about living with some limitations that are certainly nowhere near as severe as others, but to advocate for people just to think a little bit more about diversity and inclusion, and that at different times, people have more or less ability to participate and what that might look like. In sharing my story, I think that's a really useful way that I can do that to both educate others, but also to help the workplace really understand that both about students as well as other staff. So it's a real challenge. I definitely don't have the answers on how much to share and when to share. I don't try and share kind of intimate details, but I'll give examples and because I think that really helps to highlight where challenges can be like and how confronting it can be. So like when I said earlier, you know, I couldn't climb the stairs some days or I knew I could only do it a couple of times in a day, then what did that mean in terms of, well, I wanted to be able to go up and say goodnight to the kids. So that's definitely one trip up the stairs. I wasn't going to go up and get the washing and bring it bring it down the stairs to do the washing that day. And balancing out those things is really confronting, but it's a really visual example that people go, wow, that's actually quite intense if you can't walk up the stairs or you're calculating how many times you can walk up the stairs. And you mentioned it before around that long ride and it's where the external world, you might go for a ride, but then you can't do the meeting and they're like, but I just saw you ride. And that's the example of the stairs. It's like, I chose to put those teaspoons into the ride because if I don't ride, I actually can't do anything all week. So what we prioritize with a chronic illness or an invisible illness may look different to what other people would prioritize because they don't have all the information. I know my daughter, the morning she's going to spend an hour with a tutor when she's really unwell and we had this very conversation I said honey your tutor will come over what she won't realize potentially she might is that this is using all your 16 teaspoons for the day and I said to her be kind to yourself afterwards if you get nothing else done for the rest of the day that is okay because you've just decided that this is a priority for now and that's what you're going to put your teaspoons into but like the stairs now you might not be able to have a shower or get up the stairs to your bedroom or sit with the family for dinner and 
and that's okay. But be aware that perhaps you need to let the tutor know that, that you're giving your all and that because if she doesn't understand that, she may ask for more. Or, Absolutely. And I think that's the workplace example, right? Yeah. And we don't always get it right either. So I think that's a perfect example of, well, you rode 100 kilometers on the weekend. What do you mean now you can't do these other things or that you can only work three days a week because clearly you're fine because I need to set a goal to know that I can keep doing those things. And so I'll train really slowly over a really long period of time so that I know when I'm doing those things that I'm not going to exhaust myself and overstretch because that would lead me into a full-blown flare-up. But at the same time, being really truthful, so I felt quite good when I got back from overseas recently and thought, I'll be fine, went for a long ride, was really difficult. And I was like, well, it's not great, but it was really difficult. And then I thought, oh, it's just because I'm a bit tired and, you know, trying to balance out, like, is it real or is it just normal tiredness? And then a couple of days later, I was like, oh, I don't really want to get on the bike, but I really should. And I couldn't quite work out again. Is it in my mind? Anyway, I I managed to cycle two kilometers before ringing my partner and saying, this wasn't a good idea. (laughs) Too far, too far. (laughs) I'm going downhill now to the coffee shop. If you'd like to meet me there, I won't be going up any hills today. So, And I've learned that that's totally okay as well to pull out and say, actually, I can't do it. Or schedule in some time out later on. Like I know that this year has already been quite hectic at work. I know that I've got to get some more downtime and that might mean that I need to take a few days off. Even when I'm not sick sick, it's preventative and that's okay as well. That's quite hard, I think, for people to to judge and to explain because it doesn't look the same as, you know, when you're really sick with the flu and you can't, you know, it, it looks different and it feels different and it, it is kind of being kind to yourself as the biggest priority. And it's that piece of, I often ask myself professionally, is it going to be relevant to my clients? Like, for example, if I'm struggling to stand up and teach a PT, because with my chronic illness, I have trouble standing. Do I share that with them or do I just sit down? Because as a PT, you shouldn't be sitting on a chair while you're teaching people, right? Like if someone else walked into my gym at any given point, they'd be like, who is this lady? Like she sits on a chair and just yells at people, (laughs) like not yell, but you know, and it's that how much do you give? How much do you explain? Is it relevant to them? Is it not like it? And then you go, is this all in my head? Like, should I just do instead of thinking so much about it? Absolutely. And I don't know, like sometimes it might be a bit more in my head, but like the example I just gave that day, I thought it was just because I had terrible willpower and that's why it was hard to get out of bed, but actually it was hard to get out of bed. I probably shouldn't have even tried to go riding, but so, so we get it wrong as well. And that's, a, it's a constant learning to try and work out, you know, how much do you push yourself? How much do you say it's okay to be a PT who sits in a chair? That self-acceptance piece, I think, is really important too. Yeah. And Miff, we're coming to the end of the episode now. I guess maybe if we just share with the audience a little bit about what you're doing now. You know, you said you're working three days a week and you do a lot in the advocacy space. What does the professional world look like for you at the moment? Yeah, so I'm lucky enough to be director of a virtual research and training institute called Manor Institute, which is funded through the federal government. And it's all about training researchers to train rural and remote researchers in mental health. So it's a workforce issue, absolutely. So we know that there's not enough mental health workforce in regional Australia or any workforce, actually, um, particularly in health. But researchers are the ones that develop the evidence base for the next ways that we practice to advocate for more funding, all of the things that influence the way in which regional Australians live, work and play. And so Manor Institute is about 
cultivating that next group of researchers and linking people together so that we're more than the sum of our parts. And that's been like an absolute privilege to be able to set Manor Institute up and to be able to bring together those researchers. And and I hope to see that go well into the future long after I'm not director of it anymore. So that's kind of the day-to-day administrative type job. But I think what I'm really, really passionate about, and I'm so lucky to have a job that I'm passionate about because it doesn't feel like work at all, is to be able to use these collective stories in a way that influences policy. And so for me, what that looks like is that, as I said, we do these really large-scale surveys. We ask lots of people about their experience of mental health or suicide, and then we look at commonalities and difference, and we look at that in relation to the social determinants of health. So who is more vulnerable in our community, who has less access to services, who has less access to support, and how might we change services and systems to create a fairer justice society and I'm lucky enough to be able to do that through work we've done for the National Mental Health Commission through work that I'm doing with the federal government and at more local levels and with the big not-for-profits and if we can do that more and listen to the way in which people experience these really traumatic events in their lives to understand that for many people, suicide is not present or absent, that it's an option for them and that we can understand what that looks like and be comfortable to sit and hear those stories, then we can respond with services that are the right services at the right time for people and we can make sure that people don't fall through these gigantic gaps in our healthcare services, even with the best intentions and fabulous people working in them, there's huge gaps. And so how can we knit that together into an ecosystem where people are supported when they need it most? And for some people that will be early in distress when we can do a lot, there's a lot of levers that we can change if we look at the way that people are supported very, very early, right through to crisis response and making sure that we don't let people fall through gaps. So I'm really, really incredibly privileged to be able to work in and use evidence to support those arguments and advocate for people who would never have a voice otherwise, who aren't at the table, to be able to advocate for services that are responsive and caring and compassionate and timely. And if anyone wants to know what passion looks like, that is it right there. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was just like passion on a plate. You know, you, when you talked about earlier around being hungry for something, I just heard that come out and how you find your voice. Like that was just a pure demonstration of it because you are so passionate about what you were just talking about and making a difference and finding the word through stories to create change and awareness in this world. Yeah, definitely. I still get a terrible beating heart when I have to talk up though. Like it's the funniest thing because people go, oh, you're really confident in those conversations. I'm like, no, I'm not. (laughs) I'm terrified. But it's so important and it's a privileged position to be in, to be able to really talk about these things and to tease through some of the challenges around how do we know what there's limited resources in this country to support people. There's really big distances between people how do we offer support when people need it at the right time, in the right way, where there's no wrong door? Like they're big problems. But if we can think about all of the sorts of experiences that people have, it can help us see where where the gaps are and, and where the priority responses have to be. And so then that's not the loudest lobby group who's advocating for their own interests. It's actually making sure that people's needs are met when they need them. And on that note, if everyone listening could do one thing, even one tiny little thing in this space, what could that be? So my 
thing would always be at a personal level, be caring, kind and compassionate to people around you because you don't know what their story is. You don't know what's happening for them right now. You don't know what pressures they have on them. And so just taking pause for a moment to think about the other person's perspective on what's going on for them and feeling okay to ask whether somebody's okay or not. And often, and you know, there's some really great messaging around this, definitely, around Are You OK Day, for example, Mental Health Month. So there's a lot of messaging around ask people if they're not okay and definitely, definitely do that. Like there's no risk in doing that to you or to the other person. But then what do you do next? And so thinking about that and thinking about actually all I have to do is use my ears and mouth in the ratio I got given them. So listen more than you talk. And it might be a little bit uncomfortable, but it's okay then to say, you know what, I don't feel equipped to deal with what you're dealing with, but I'm really happy to stand with you while you call this number. Or I could call your GP for you and say you need an urgent appointment. Or why don't we call Lifeline together? So you don't have to solve anything for anyone else. But you can be the caring person who just listens for a moment. If we all do that, then we're creating an ecosystem ourselves in a community. And I think in regional Australia particularly, we do that quite well anyway, but we also have a whole lot of barriers to doing that. Like we should be stoic or, you know, real men don't talk about their problems or my problem's not big enough because your problem is bigger than mine. So there's a whole lot of things that are barriers to that. But actually our problem today is a priority for us if it's a problem. So it's okay to say that to somebody else. And it's also okay to say back, I'm not quite sure how to deal with this. So let's let's just problem solve together for a moment. Because often it's the problem solving that becomes impaired when we're really stressed and somebody else can help us problem solve through something. Yeah. Definitely. And I was thinking when you said that, it's like kindness is free and it actually takes less of us to be kind than it does to show another, you know, aggression or frustration. Or like if you think about being kind and letting something go past you or or smiling at someone or doing something that's helpful will actually fill your bucket up as opposed to driving and getting frustrated at someone and swearing and, you know, holding onto that and arms are tight and shoulders like, but we don't lean into that kindness enough and that compassion. Yeah. And I I guess because as a qualitative researcher, I've listened to several thousand, many thousands of individual stories of people's worst moments in their life. And not many people can understand how you can do that. People generally say that must be really, really hard. It's actually a really privileged space to be in. And it's often quite cathartic when you're sitting with somebody and you don't have to solve any problems. You're just listening. I feel in my work, by asking people to do that and to sit and tell their stories with me, I have to do something with it. I can't leave those stories unheard. I can't not try and improve what that situation would be like for the next person coming through that. There's something in me that feels really strongly about that and that it's completely unethical to ask people to share their stories and then not do something with it, to just take that. So I feel really passionately about that and I also feel really privileged that that's a space that I'm allowed to be in with people and that that I can use that for a kind of greater good, I guess, to the best of my ability. Oh, Miff, we're going to have to get you back on because really, and we had this conversation earlier around, do we go into your personal story or do we go into the expert space? And as everyone can hear today, you have so much value to add from the expert space. And some of the questions that I want to ask you about 
is hearing those stories and responses and how we work with suicide, how we work with mental health. What do we know? What don't we know? All of those things. So don't be a stranger. We're going to get you back for sure. But I love to finish every episode with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. So I love a good laugh, but the one person in my life that has truly, truly, truly made me belly laugh is one of my children, Flynn. He still has the best laugh ever. Like I challenge anyone who knows him to not laugh when he really, truly laughs. It is impossible not to. But when he was a little kid, he used to laugh in his sleep, like big, big laughs. So I would wake up in the middle of the night and he would be laughing and you could do nothing else other than laugh with him. That question just reminds me straight away of just this tiny child just with the best, best laugh. And so, yeah, I have to give that prize to my son, Flynn. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing so much of you, you know, from your story to your knowledge to your experiences. It's been such a rich conversation today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Ellie. Every episode on challenges that change us is so different. You know, sometimes we get really into people's personal stories where they've never spoken about it before. Other times we speak to keynote speakers that are international speakers speaking all around the globe on their personal story. And we also bring on some experts in their lane. You know, I really love that diversity that we bring to challenges that change us. And Myth's story is one of those, you know, she brings so much in the space of trauma, loss, and understanding the complexities and resilience in the space of suicide. She also really highlighted when we tell our stories, having a think about who owns that story and the different perspectives that may color that story. You know, that really stayed with me from this conversation. And for those of you, I'm sure you have all heard now about the High Performance Leadership Summit, March 8th, 9th and 10th. It is going to be a perla. So if you have not checked it out. This is probably your last chance to jump on, book your spot. I I would love nothing more than to be in the room with you for three days. If that is something that's up your alley and you're in that high performance space, a senior leader, a CEO in leadership or HR, you know, middle management, if you're, if you're an entrepreneur, this might be your time for 2024. Otherwise have an awesome week guys. And I will see you on Thursday for the mini episode and next Monday for our normal challenges that change us. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.